Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Wednesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This week, former President Donald Trump's second impeachment trial is taking place in the Senate. At the core of the trial is Donald Trump's speech. What did the president say and when did he say it? From the standpoint of the House managers, Donald Trump incited violence on January 6th, when he gave the speech on the ellipse, encouraging his followers to march on the Capitol, which they then occupied. From the standpoint of Donald Trump's defense, there was no intimate connection, no causal connection, no connection at all, they say, between what the president had to say at the time and what the rioters did. But impeachment was not the only and possibly not even the most serious consequence to Donald Trump of his speech on January 6. In the aftermath of the attack on the Capitol, Twitter suspended Donald Trump permanently and Facebook suspended Trump indefinitely. Those two suspensions effectively blocked Donald Trump from social media, which had been the oxygen for his campaign and the main method that he used to communicate to his public during his presidency. The consequences for the question of free expression and social media could not be greater. And indeed, after Joe Biden's inauguration, Facebook decided to refer the question of Trump's suspension to its newly created Facebook Oversight Board, a group of 20-plus experts from all over the world who are independent of Facebook and have the authority to decide whether its decisions conform with its stated values and with Facebook's rules. Right now, the question of Trump's suspension is pending before the Oversight Board, and Facebook has pledged that it will follow the conclusion that the Oversight Board reaches. They raise profound and difficult questions about what speech should be permitted and what speech should be restrained. 
to discuss these pressing questions and the state of play in social media content governance more generally. I'm joined today by the Vice President of Content Policy at Facebook, Monica Bickert. Monica's job is to run all decisions about content policy at Facebook. She was intimately involved in the Trump process, the Trump decision, and the decision to pass along the Trump case to the Facebook Oversight Board. Before we start this conversation, I want to begin by telling my listeners that when it comes to the Facebook Oversight Board, I am the very opposite of a disinterested observer. I helped come up with the idea for the Oversight Board in the first place. I worked as a paid consultant to Facebook during the entire three-year process of getting the board going, and I still advise Facebook now on questions of free expression. Indeed, that's how I met Monica, during the process of working on the Oversight Board, and we became friends and subsequently taught a class together on social media and the law at Harvard Law School. With that relevant background in mind, I'm excited to turn to our conversation. Monica, welcome to Deep Background. Monica, let's start with the biggest ticket issue in the universe of content moderation right up front, which is the suspension of Donald Trump from your platform as well as from Twitter uh, in the wake of the January 6th attacks on the Capitol. And I guess I just want to begin by asking you, what did your internal process look like? How, you know, in the whole complex ecosystem that you're in charge of, of content policy at Facebook, did you make your way towards this really historic decision? The first thing that happened was my attention was brought to a couple of posts by then President Trump. My team flagged for me, hey, a video has been posted by the president. We're reviewing it now to see if it violates any of our content policies, but it's something that that you need to look at. One was a video and one was a text post, and they happened during the attack on the Capitol. We saw in the president's video that he said, I love you all and thank you, or words to that effect, which to us constituted praise. So that was a violation of our policies. And then shortly thereafter, there was a text post that had uh, some of the same language. It it called those who had breached the Capitol great patriots. So they flagged that video. I reviewed it along with some of my colleagues. And what we saw was what arose to a violation of our policy against celebrations of violence. And this is a policy that... Uh, you may have heard about before in the context of us saying we don't allow anybody to praise terror acts or acts of violence. And you can think of that as if somebody, if there's a bombing somewhere and somebody says, oh, I'm glad that bombing happened, we would remove that as praise of a terror act. But we remove any praise of violent acts where a person is likely to be injured. And here, the capital attack we knew was a violent act And this was sort of a normal part of our process throughout the run-up to the election and then the run-up to the inauguration was having a 24-hour operation center where we were flagging and looking at content that potentially violated our policies. And of course, that included from, uh, you know, any, any one of the billions of people using our services, but it also did include looking at content that was posted by high profile accounts, including the president's account. So Monica, I want to ask first a question about that. 24-hour operations center and how they were functioning. In this instance, how was that working? I mean, was it literally that there's someone there in the op center looking to see what the president would do next? 
Well, there's always three ways that content can get flagged for our attention. And one is a user report. Two is, as you mentioned, we use technology to try to identify likely violations. And three is we work with partners outside the company, and that could include, depending on where you are in the world, safety groups or media uh, groups that might want to flag something for us. And when it came to the U.S. election, we were working with a number of partners, including uh, elections officials and safety groups, voters' rights groups, et cetera. And then we also had our teams who were looking at high-profile accounts, not just because content that violates our policies from those accounts would be really important to be on top of, but also because sometimes you'll see people who have high-profile accounts being the subject of attempted hacks or attempted abuse in comments. And so those are things that our teams do watch. So let me turn now to the remarkable observation that you first reacted to the Trump post because they were celebrating violence. That's a tiny bit different from what the House of Representatives alleged in its article of impeachment against Trump, not that he was celebrating violence, but that he incited violence. And the difference, I guess, is that celebration is when something violent has already happened. You're celebrating the fact that that violent thing is happening, whereas incitement is the thing of violence hasn't happened yet, and you're doing something that is encouraging it to, to come about. And that involves a lot of prediction on the part of whoever's judging that, in this instance, by the House and then eventually by the Senate. So do you see those things as in some way distinct, or was it just the case that when Trump gave his initial speech to the rally on January 6th, that that didn't ring any immediate bells because no violence had happened yet? Because if so, that's kind of interesting, really, for the, the question of impeachment, right? If it didn't look like incitement when he said it, and you were all sitting there in your 24-hour opera room looking at it, that's sort of not a terrible defense for Trump to raise when he says, I didn't incite any violence. Not a defense to raise with you, but a defense for Trump to raise, you know, in his impeachment trial. Well, one of the things that I would emphasize is with our celebration of violence policy, that is ultimately about preventing further violence. So, for instance, I mentioned earlier, if somebody says, oh, I'm glad that bomb went off in, in that city and killed all those people. The reason we remove that is not because it's distasteful, although it certainly is. It's because we think that uh, people praising and celebrating violent acts glorifies that and can lead to further violence. So whether or not you want to call that uh, additional incitement or call it, as we do in our policy, celebration of violence, I think the point is the same, which is we thought there was a risk of additional violence, and we thought the president's remarks contributed to that. But is it in fact the case that your own decision to indefinitely suspend President Trump from the platform was driven not by the theory that his speech to the crowd on January 6th led to the violence, but rather on the basis of comments he made after that violence had already begun. Yes, that's, it is right. What we removed was commentary after the violence had begun. It was a video and a text post. But the reason that we have that celebration of violence policy is because we think that kind of commentary can indeed stoke further violence. And in fact, here, not only did we remove the content, but we extended the 24-hour ban that was called for by our policies. We extended that indefinitely because we thought the risk of violence on the ground was still very present and likely would be throughout the transition to power. That's really interesting, too. The, the indefinite ban through the, as it were, transition until, uh, until Joe Biden was eventually sworn into office, at which point, we'll come to this later, Facebook turned this issue over to, to its oversight board. 
Was that then because you were worried about violence or you were worried that somehow the transition itself was in jeopardy through democracy itself being in danger or are those basically the same thing? For us, it's about the risk of violence. What we're looking at is through the lens of our values around allowing speech, but also promoting safety and removing what we think could reasonably contribute to a risk of physical harm to somebody. And here we had actual physical harm happening on the grounds. We thought there was a continued risk of that. And we did not want the president at that time who had a high number of followers, a really big microphone and a pattern of celebrating violence to be able to further stoke violence. The question that a lot of critics of Facebook inevitably are are asking once you did do it is why not sooner, right? You say the president was glorifying violence. Well, what was it when after the Charlottesville violence, which included a death, the president said there were fine people on both sides? You know, why wasn't that a celebration of violence? Why weren't other comments that Trump has made over the course of his presidency comparably violations of policy such that only now when there was an attack on the Capitol was he actually deplatformed? Well, first, I I would say this isn't the first time we've removed content from the president. Anytime that we have a controversial post by any world leader, and this has happened a number of times, including with President Trump and other high-profile leaders in the United States, anytime we have a post that is close to the line, we have to look at what the most natural reading of that post is. When you look at that video and he's saying, I love you and thank you, One could argue that he was addressing the protesters generally and not those who had breached the Capitol. We thought the most natural reading, since he was also saying, okay, go home peacefully, we thought the most natural reading was that he was referring to those who had engaged in the violence. That gets you to the taking down of the specific content. But this decision was different because this was an indefinite suspension what at least colloquially one would call a deplatforming, which is a bigger deal than taking down content that occurred in the past. Was there a specific rule that you could point to that merited the deplatforming, the, the indefinite suspension, rather than the taking down of the content? Yes. So basically the first time that somebody violates one of our policies, unless it's a really severe policy, for instance, if somebody posts a child sexual abuse material, then we would immediately take down the account. But for violations that fall into a, a general category, such as a bullying violation or a celebration of violence violation, the first time is usually just a warning. But if there is a second violation within a period of time, then the consequence is generally a 24-hour ban on that person posting on our services. So your account is still there, you just can't post anything. And if you recall, that day we came out and we said, we've removed the president's content and he is banned from posting on our services for 24 hours. So that was just a straight application of the policy. But what we then did the next day was say, we're going to suspend that privilege to post indefinitely because of the fear of further violence and that we would at least have that in place through the transition of power. So that part, that extension from 24 hours to the indefinite suspension was based on circumstances on the ground and not just a routine application of our policies. I will say, of course, that the consequences 
you know, do we take down somebody's account for this certain number of strikes or do we ban them? Those sometimes we do uh, exercise some judgment. We'll look at somebody's account, for instance, and say, well, in this case, we think this post was very borderline and this person didn't get uh, notice um, of his or her violation. And so we're actually not going to remove the page. We'll give them a final warning. That sort of thing is fairly routine. Here, it went in the other direction. We said, we think we need to extend the ban at least through the transition of power and indefinitely after that. What would you say to a skeptic who said, okay, I accept that you have to exercise judgment, but why is it that through the entirety of Donald Trump's presidency, that judgment did not involve his being uh, suspended? And then after Congress stayed up all night and voted that he was not, ultimately that the election was over and that he had lost, then suddenly the exercise of judgment went against Trump, you know, when he was he posed less of a threat to to the company. Well, like I said, we had removed content from the president's account before he had not hit the threshold that would trigger the 24 hour ban. Um, so that's just the application of our policies. I will say that one of the questions we've gotten in the wake of this decision is what about other world leaders? What about uh, world leaders who are seen as by the international community or the human rights community as real bad guys. And why don't you remove them from your service? And what I can say there is, again, we remove content when it violates our policies. We have removed content from other world leaders. And that includes praise of violence. It also includes sharing misinformation about COVID-19. So we do remove that content, but we only impose those additional consequences when it's called for under our policies. You mentioned the other world leaders. This goes to one of the principles that's in your statement of values. And the first of them does acknowledge that sometimes because there's a preference that you have for uh, freedom of expression, especially on political topics, that sometimes uh, elected officials will say or do things that would otherwise violate your policies. And you don't take them down because you think that those things serve a positive news value. How does that interact with the fact that somebody is a world leader? I mean, is that basically a reason to be more permissive with respect to statements by world leaders? Well, the policy, the newsworthiness policy is a little bit different than that. And actually, rarely uh, do we use it with, with world leaders or politicians. Basically, in our community standards, we say, here's what's prohibited. And then we say, if something, if we think the value for the public in seeing something outweighs the the safety risk because of the item's newsworthiness, then we may leave it up even if it violates our policies. And we do apply that newsworthiness policy regularly, I think probably most most often in uh, the context of, say, there's a nude art exhibit or there's an image of graphic violence in, in the context of somebody raising awareness about a war and it shows a nude child or something like that, where we would say, this is newsworthy, so we're going to leave it up. We think that the the risk of safety is far outweighed by the value of people seeing this content. In a small handful of cases, we have used that policy to leave up content posted by world leaders or or politicians. But that's fairly rare. But generally, it would would include something where uh, we think there's no real safety risk and we think that people should be able to see that this politician engaged in this speech, which is likely distasteful or, or there's probably something about it that's problematic but not unsafe. 
I want to turn now to the the oversight board, which I helped advise on and you helped construct and build. And in fact, that's how we met when uh, I came out to Menlo Park back when people still traveled places um, at the very, very early stages to, to think and talk about potential oversight board directions. And sure enough, the baby's all grown up. And I mean, so far the oversight board has decided, I guess, six and a half cases. Yeah, five and a half cases. Five and a half cases. None of them on the scale of this decision. This is a huge decision, huge for the company, huge for the oversight board, possibly not insignificant for politics in the United States, given that more than 70 million people voted for Donald Trump and lots of Republicans seem to believe that he still has a big influence within his party. So I guess the first question I have is, do you think they're ready for it? I do. I do think they are. And I think the the decisions they just put out, so uh, basically, as you know, but but people listening may not know, the oversight board was constructed to be an independent check on the decisions that my team is making, that, that Facebook is making, um, on removing people's content. And when they issued their most recent decisions, their first decisions, this slate of of there are five opinions that they put out, and then there was there was one decision they couldn't make because the post was actually removed by the person who had posted it. But in their five decisions, they really explained their thinking. They they demonstrated real seriousness and sophistication. And I, I think I'm really excited about how they approached these first cases and the potential for them to decide really important cases in the future, starting with the decision to indefinitely suspend and remove content from President Trump's account. In most of the cases that they heard, this first tranche, the oversight board flipped the decision that Facebook had made. How are you going to feel if they flip you on this one too? Well, we referred it to them because we think they should get to make this decision. So, uh, you know, we're, we're looking forward to that. And I will say the criteria for for us, so the way the, the way the board can get can get a case, a a user could appeal to them. B Facebook could say, "Boy, this is really hard and and really significant, and we think that somebody else should be making this decision." And in this case, we decided to refer this to the oversight board, the Trump decision. The criteria we use are: is it a significant decision? It clearly is. And is it a difficult decision? And here, the fact that we have had people, some people saying, why wasn't a permanent ban? Why didn't you do it sooner? And we've had other people saying, I can't believe Facebook would remove um, a sitting president's ability to post, really shows how difficult this is. So I think they are the right group to decide it. And we didn't just ask them, tell us whether or not we were right to remove this particular video and impose this indefinite suspension. We said, tell us how we should think about uh, removing content from or indefinitely suspending uh, world leaders or those in, in positions of power in countries around the world. So this is something that really does have a, a global uh, implication. We'll be back in a moment. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. One of the things that's in process right now is that Donald Trump is being tried for impeachment in front of the U.S. Senate. And counting noses, it seems much more probable than not that he will not be convicted by the Senate. And according to a a norm that is in place, despite the fact that I don't like it very much, when a president is not convicted by the Senate, because there's no two-thirds vote to convict him, that president usually says, I was acquitted by the Senate. I'm not sure I love the word acquitted in that context because it's nothing like acquittal in front of a jury, as you know, as a former prosecutor. But um, the president's likely to say, if the Senate doesn't convict him, I was acquitted. And whether it's too late for him to say it to the oversight board or not, in public, I would think that Trump or his supporters are likely to say, listen, Facebook, who are you to second guess the Senate of the United States? You know, the impeachment of a president is a bit like an indictment. Then he gets a trial. I was tried. I was acquitted. I'm not guilty of incitement, um, and therefore you should reinstate me. I'm, at least that's what I would say if I were supporting Donald Trump in this, in this effort. Should the oversight board care about that? Should it matter at all that there's been a public political process prescribed by the Constitution? And if at the end of that process, it turns out that Trump is not removed, does that matter? I, I think it's really for the oversight board. I mean, that's why we have them. So I actually won't give won't give an opinion on that. Because you don't want to unduly influence them or, or because it's because you don't want to take a stand on it. I, well, I just don't think, I don't think it's really my role. I think uh, the reason we have them is because we think they should be able to make that sort of decision. Monica, tell me about how, maybe a little soon to say this, but how does your job and the job of your whole team that work on content policy change in a world where there's now this oversight board to review the decisions that you guys made. 
How does that affect you when you go to work in the mornings? Well, I, I can just tell you my personal reaction to the first slate of, of decisions, which was I was very happy and felt uh, like we got clear direction from them. And, and this is not about uh, reinstating three posts that we had removed that we ended up reinstating after their their decisions. It wasn't about that so much as it was about the other guidance they gave us about why they thought we had to reinstate these posts. And so, for instance, things like you need to provide more granular information about your COVID-19 misinformation policies, or you need to, it was operational advice about what we need to tell people about whether review is automated or, or using human beings. And it was process advice about ensuring that people have the ability to be reheard, to appeal our decisions. That That's the kind of guidance that can help us know where to invest from an operational standpoint, a product standpoint. And do you and the company view those recommendations as, they're, they're in kind of a subtle area, right? I mean, they're, the, the board is empowered to give you non-binding recommendations, but it's also true that if the board makes something necessary to its decision in a case, then arguably that would be binding. So how do you figure out what it is in a given situation? What we've, what we've, and, and I should say, we're, we're going to take uh, the, we have 30 days um, under the process that we've devised, 30 days to digest the decisions and respond to them publicly. And we'll respond to them in newsroom posts. Um, so we'll have to, to look into the specifics of each of their recommendations before we have an answer to give on that. But um, more generally, the, the process we have is if they tell us that a specific piece of content should be up or down, we will honor that and we will implement that right away. And we've done that with the decisions that they gave us. If uh, there is other content that is identical in terms of what it's saying and, and basically it's in parallel context, it's being used the same way, then we will try to find that and make the same decision. So for instance, uh, if they tell us, hey, this particular meme that you, this is, I'm making this up, but if they said this meme that you removed for hate speech does not violate and you should reinstate it. We might look for other instances where we had removed that same meme and say, okay, if it was shared without a caption and it was shared in the same way, we're going to reinstate that right away. So that's part of uh, implementing the binding part of their decisions. The policy guidance stuff, including them saying, for instance, um, you know, you should look at the comments under a post in your in your evaluation, or you should have an automatic right of appeal to a human being to re-review content. That is not binding on us. You mentioned COVID disinformation as a currently very important question, one that the Oversight Board has already referred to. And obviously it takes up a lot of your own thinking and, and time. How, broadly speaking, has the company decided to think about COVID misinformation? And I'm thinking now, especially about vaccine-related misinformation as we head into a period where, for the moment, there's still a question of getting enough people vaccines who want them. But at some point, they'll, with any luck, there'll be a shift and we'll start wondering about what they call a vaccine hesitancy, which does seem to me like a, a major, major, major euphemism. Um, people who don't want to be vaccinated, and if they don't want to be vaccinated, that may be on the basis of uh, a view of the world that, from a scientific perspective, might be counted as misinformation. So how is the company thinking about that? Oh, this is such a, this is A, so difficult and B, so important. And we've been focused on this since uh, last January. I mean, since since uh, the pandemic first began. And we've been working closely with health authorities, most notably probably the World Health Organization 
and the CDC in the U.S. to get their guidance on how we should be thinking about and responding to COVID misinformation. By the way, misinformation is just part of it. We have a number of, of COVID-specific policies. One that's that's interesting that maybe we could talk through sometime is um, what to do with commerce, offers to sell masks or COVID test kits, especially when there are shortages or when things aren't necessarily reliably certified. Um, so there are a lot of COVID-specific policies, but specifically in the area of misinformation, we've developed really a two-pronged approach. One is removing or downranking and labeling content that is misleading or inaccurate. And then the other prong is really aggressively promoting accurate information about the vaccine, about treatments, about um, uh, the virus itself. And so, I mean, just to, I think we put the the COVID information center, I think we got that going in March or or maybe earlier um, of 2020. And we have had hundreds of millions of people visit that which is encouraging. And part of that is because we're, we're blasting notifications, trying to direct people to that center. In fact, uh, in, in just December 2020, we had more than 130 million people visit that information center. So that's one thing we're doing. But as you say, like actually responding in the moment to misinformation that's shared on the platform is also really, really important. And so we are removing, and this is criteria that we've worked up with health organizations, we're removing content that falls into a number of categories where if somebody believed it, it would contribute to the risk that that person would get COVID or would spread the virus. So for instance, false statements, false claims about the uh, disease being no worse than the flu or the the virus doesn't really exist or uh, poor people are immune from it and they can't get it or 5G causes COVID. Um, All of these- What, What about the people who say, what about someone who says, I just don't believe these vaccines will work and I believe they'll do harm and I'm not going to take them. That's something we would allow. If somebody says, I personally, and then they're giving their their own experience, we would generally allow that. If they are saying something as a statement, so something like, um, you know, I've, I've looked at it, the vaccines don't work or the vaccines cause infertility. Or did you see this study or, or this article and then they're, they're citing something that is inaccurate? We would remove that. What gets really tricky, and this is sort of where your comment goes, what gets tricky is uh, statements of personal questioning or personal testimonials. So let's say somebody says, I just got the, the first vaccine shot. I've never been this sick. Um, it's really, really horrible. If I had it to do all over again, I don't think I would have gotten it. What do you do with that? That's just a person stating his or her own opinion. What about somebody stating facts like uh, my sister got the vaccine on Monday. On Wednesday, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. With everybody, uh, with a high number of people getting vaccinated, some people are going to have heart attacks the next day, not because of the vaccine, but because they were always going to have a heart attack on Tuesday. And so- um, I mean, it's further, It goes further than that. There will be some people, I don't know, further, but it, there will be cases of people who get vaccinated and then the next day- have COVID because they were infected before they got the vaccine. I mean, that's going to happen to some people. Right. So uh, that's one of the, the tricky questions for us. How do we deal with it's sort of testimonial content? And what's your approach been? With personal testimonials, we generally allow it. I mean, if it looks like, if, if we see a case where it looks like somebody is 
intentionally trying to skirt the policies. Maybe this is a financially motivated actor, or maybe this is somebody who is generally sharing conspiracy theories and, and, um, uh, there's something more going on there. We might take a different approach. But if this is just a regular person who is sharing a personal experience, our, our general policy is to allow it. Um, there's an in-between approach too. So uh, we remove content where we think it can contribute to the spread of the virus. And that is, there are all different kinds of claims that fall into that, but it's generally stuff about diminishing the seriousness of the virus or saying that there are cures that there aren't or, or discrediting um, the vaccines. But then there is also content that we demote, meaning it won't get the same distribution on Facebook. And we put labels on it that direct people to that COVID information center. And that will include content like, uh, you know, the vaccine is man-made. This is all a big conspiracy. And there, there's not so much a safety risk, but we do want to make sure that people are actually getting accurate information about the virus. So just to to basically put uh, some numbers on it, since March, and I think these numbers go through maybe October, we removed about 12 million posts for COVID misinformation. And I think uh, since then, in December, I think we removed maybe just over 400,000 such posts. So that kind of gives you the general idea of scale. And then in terms of the demoting and labeling content that where there's not a safety risk, but it's still uh, uh, widely debunked misinformation, it's more than 160 million posts in that same time frame that we've labeled. So as a proportion, it's almost, it's more than 10 times as much downranking or labeling compared to removing content. I want to ask you about the future of content moderation in that way. I mean, do you see, is that characteristic of where you see your whole field going? I mean, is there going to be more and more and more and more downranking and labeling rather than removal or in addition to removal or do you think those numbers are likely to remain relatively stable going forward in terms of the ratio? When it comes to misinformation, I think uh, I think labeling will become more and more important. Now, Facebook already does it quite broadly. We've we've done this since 2017. We work with more than 80 fact-checking partners, not just on COVID misinformation. This is on misinformation about any topic. If it's going viral and a fact-checking agency that we work with wants to fact-check it, then they can label it and we will downrank it and we will apply the label to it. That's something that we already do quite broadly. But I think this is an approach that you're starting to see some of the other platforms get into. In fact, you saw it in the run-up to the election. And um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's something that maybe increases in its importance, um, an important tool. One of the criticisms that I've heard a lot, um, sometimes directed at the oversight board, but more broadly directed against content moderation, is that in a sense, it's all very well and good, everyone says. It's good that you're doing that. It's nice that, that Facebook wants to do that. But if the biggest, deepest social cost associated with Facebook is people finding themselves in algorithmic bubbles where they mostly hear what is referred to them by their friends, their family, uh, people of, of like mind. And if that, if that drives polarization, and these are very controversial claims, but I'm, I'm ventriloquizing what, what critics often say, then they say, you know, isn't it just sort of a band-aid to say we're taking down the worst content or we're downranking content that we don't especially like? The, the, the strong form of the criticism would say all of the tools that you've placed in content moderation or in content policy, those should go to the very fundamental question of what the company allows to be seen in the first place. You know, maybe the newsfeed that Facebook produces should come under the auspices of content policy, you know, should be similarly not just checked for misinformation, but which it is, of course, but more broadly, 
should be part of a process of trying to curate material in a way that minimizes polarization. And obviously that's not the world that we live in now, but it's a, it's a normative vision of, of how things could evolve or develop in the future. When you hear that kind of criticism, how do you tend to react to it? Well, I, you know, one of the things I, I think that points to is the power of us directing people to authoritative information, which, like I said, the numbers on that actually are, are very good. We have a COVID information center. We had a voting information center uh, before the U.S. election. We're building other information centers. And what we're seeing is people actually do visit these when they are directed to them in the moment. And so that's something that I think can be effective against polarization. For instance, in the run-up to the election, we were directing people very broadly, not just when there was something false, but when people were discussing election-related topics, we were saying, get the facts here, and pointing them to a bipartisan, accurate set of resources. So I, I do think that's important. The other thing I would say is, because of the headlines and because of the understandable focus on the election recently, I think there's a misperception that Facebook is is all about news or, or politics. And in fact, the news content, the percentage of, of Facebook content that is related to the news is very, very small. I think it's less than 5%. And so when you think about polarization going up, and I think there, there are some studies out there that show this, polarization has been increasing politically in the United States for decades. And there are many reasons for that. So it's not, it, it will not be enough for social media companies alone to say, well, we're going to take this one approach. This is something that we have to work on as a broader society. A last question, Monica, and again, this comes from, from skeptics. They'll say, well, look, the oversight board is great, but it's only going to hear a handful of cases. What about all the other cases where every day Facebook is making decisions about content posted by users who get a lot of engagement, including people whose values and views might threaten the, the content policy standards. How do you assure or try to assure the general public that the company's profit incentive, which goes alongside engagement, is um, not enough to overcome the counteracting principle of enforcement that you and your team are, are charged with implementing? I guess the, the skeptical way of putting it would be, it's nice that the oversight board will oversee you some of the time, but why should the rest of the world trust you when the oversight board isn't looking? I, I guess I have two answers to that. And, and one is sort of a, a personal perspective, which is I've been in this job now for eight years or so. And what it looks like is my team of a couple hundred people coming together with experts on speech and safety from around the world and crafting a set of standards, which we then apply with thousands of content moderators that use the, the rules and the guidance that we give them. It is not dictated by concerns about revenue or, you know, I can't, for instance, when we're, when we're designing our policies, we don't, we don't talk to people on the sales team about how that would affect revenue. That's not part of what goes into this. Um, and so that's, that's one personal assurance I would give. But in terms of the oversight board's role on this, I think, yes, it's true. They're only going to hear a small number of cases. And even if we doubled the size of the oversight board, you know, we, we make millions of decisions every week. So the oversight board is not going to be able to, to hear a significant percentage of those cases. But the decisions that we saw them make have an effect in uh, 
flagging for us the broader concerns. It's not just about reinstating a piece of content. Like I said, their guidance was much more around what kind of notice has to be provided, what kind of process has to be provided. And those that's the sort of guidance that will indeed lead to us thinking about bigger questions that will affect all of our users. Monica, thank you for taking us under the hood. Um, it's a complicated engine in there. We will look forward to seeing what the Oversight Board does in the Trump suspension case. I myself am looking forward to it with bated breath. I mean, I, I am about as far from the capacity to be objective about the Oversight Board as it's possible for me to be about anything apart maybe from my actual children. Um, but on the other hand, the Oversight Board is in fact totally independent now, independent not only of Facebook, but certainly independent of me. And so I myself am watching with uh, fascination and not a little uh, terror to see to see how it all comes out. Well, thank you so much, and, and thanks for the conversation. I always learn so much when I'm speaking to Monica. The truth is that we never really ask what happens behind the scenes at the big social media platforms when speech, whether that of an ordinary person or of Donald Trump, is left up or taken down. Where Monica lives professionally is an epicenter of a new form of power. It's the power to decide who is heard. It's also the power to amplify or decelerate the trajectory of information as it spreads through the world. This is a crucial historical moment for the governance of content on social media, for what content is allowed to remain and what content is taken down. We are witnessing a deep interpenetration of how the president's words and speech play out in the realm of government, as in the impeachment, and how they play out in the realm of communication across social media, as we see with respect to Trump's suspensions. The outcomes of each are going to matter for the way we think about free expression in the United States and the world. And when the Oversight Board reaches its decision about Donald Trump, I will come back to you here on Deep Background with the possibility of further discussion and conversation. In the meantime, I'm watching the impeachment trial as closely as I know how. I better be, because I'm on TV almost every night this week trying to offer an opinion about it. I'm sparing my Deep Background listeners those comments for the moment, but as the trial develops, if important things come up that we think are relevant to our listeners, I promise to come back to them in the very near future. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash slash iHeart.